What's up, everyone? Welcome to my corner of the internet. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments, the leading global payments provider helping sellers keep more of their hard-earned money. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Crossover Commerce. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is my corner of the internet where I bring the best and brightest in the Amazon and e-commerce space. Every episode here is presented by, you guessed it, Ping Pong Payments. Who's Ping Pong Payments, you might ask? Well, Ping Pong Payments is a cross-border payment solution helping you save more of your time, money, and effort. If you're sending payments internationally to your suppliers, your manufacturer, your VAs, if you're making any sort of transaction that person might be in a different country, hey, it's easy to save a lot more money with Ping Pong Payments. It's free to sign up. Just go to usa.pingpongx.com forward slash podcast to sign up for free. Just mentioned you uh, were sent over by Crossover Commerce, and you can check out all of our past 221 episodes. That's right, the magical number of 222, um, which should have, in hindsight, been on Tuesday, uh, February 22nd of 2022. My mistake, everyone, is uh, should have happened. It's happening today, but all those past episodes will be found on our website. Transcriptions, key takeaways, things like that. Go ahead and check that out of past episodes, or you can catch us live, like every episode, on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just subscribe or follow our channels wherever you might be listening or watching this from. That's right. This podcast is live initially, and you might be listening to us a couple weeks later. If you like the live session or if you're happening to be tuning in from a live podcast, uh, location, just go ahead and in the comment section and ask your questions. Let us know where you're listening from, uh, and we'll throw them up on the screen so that our guests and myself will be able to answer those questions or just interact with you as well. So that being said, over the next hour or so, I'm really excited because not many people get to say that they've been in the belly of the beast. And by beast, I mean Amazon. This is not too, uh, a bad thing. This is a, a an insightful conversation and podcast that I want to have today. It's really exciting to have one of our very own here at Ping Pong Payments come directly from Amazon. Used to work in the global uh, global selling division of Amazon for a few years, and just the insights that he gives me on a day to day basis, plus uh, what he tells about the the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will, of the insights of working there are very insightful. And I think that's super important to understand as sellers grow. If you might be a service provider, might be a seller, or even going to work for Amazon itself, I think that. There's a lot to learn about it. Um, so super fascinating kind of insight that I wanted to bring on today on a Friday where it's very nice and relaxing. Get to kind of kick back our heels a little bit um, when we're working hard, but it's nice to step back and kind of talk about these kind of conversations. So we are going to be calling today's episode. Let me pull it up here on my graphics. The Confessions. Oh, this is so scandalous. Feels scandalous, not so supposed to be scandalous. The Confessions of an Ex-Amazon Employee. So without further ado, coming to us, from the great state of Colorado in Denver, Colorado, my colleague, Eric uh, Schutzler of Ping Pong Payments. Eric, thanks for hopping on Crossover Commerce, man. Hey, great to, great to be here, Ron. Yeah, this is, I give Eric credit, everyone. He's in Denver, but he's wearing, he has a Tom Brady jersey in the background. So first and foremost, let, let's get this straight. You, you didn't grow up in Denver, did you? Or you're just a Tom Brady fan? No, I grew up in uh, I grew up in Seattle, but uh, spent a couple of years in in Boston, Massachusetts as well. Yeah. And I just have an affinity for greatness. What can I say? <laughs> okay, that's what we'll call it. Uh, no, you don't have a you don't have a Tampa Bay jersey, so can't no. say you're a Tom Brady fan, but you're a pa- 
Pats fans. Okay. From Indianapolis, I have to give all my pa- uh, Patriots uh, fans a little crap, but uh, they give us they give us the ring the ringer too many years as he was quarterback. But, but no, hey, uh, thanks for hopping on uh, today. Um, I'm I've been super excited working with you the past couple of months and getting your insights. Um, but to give some clarity for our audience and listeners today, um, why don't you give us a little bit of background on what you did at Amazon, maybe before that, how you got into the e-commerce space, and then where we are today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super thrilled to be here. Um, so yeah, obviously, once again, I'm Eric Schutzler. Um, joined Ping Pong here a couple months ago after, you know, hopefully an illustrious career. Just kidding. But uh, a couple years at uh, Amazon's global selling department. Um, I joined there right before COVID and really never went into an Amazon office, actually. I never stepped foot into a building other really? than, other than one, one time um, and really was just to walk around more than anything um so yeah a pandemic kind of baby of amazon for sure um worked there for a couple years and i was a part of the team helping with uh, the middle east expansion so into the uae saudi arabia and then uh, now turkey and and egypt as well so um yeah it was a a super exciting time worked with some fantastic people at amazon and um and yeah well that that's so fascinating too. I, I joined Ping Pong here. Everyone knows this that I joined right before the pandemic. So I haven't been in our offices either. It, it all feels not real to me until you kind of walk through there. Did you feel that way um at Amazon? Like I, I mean I'm curious if you never walked to an yeah. office building, does it feel like you're a part of the company or on your For end? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up in Seattle. Um and I spent a lot of time there and I've seen, you know, the culture and um I guess the city changed dramatically when Amazon really came in and, and made it their own baby of a city more than anything. So, you know, I was familiar with Amazon for a super long time of my life, um, but, you know, not going into an office for sure. Yeah, you don't, you feel detached to a degree. And I think everybody's been experiencing that during COVID for sure. Um, and yeah, you don't really feel as much of that familial bond that I guess, I think some people would say you really needed at a company like Amazon. Um, it was very much like a, you know, put your head down and and and, and work from that perspective. Um, but uh, luckily the team that I was on inside of Amazon was, was pretty great. So, um, yeah. All, all good things to say over here. That's awesome. So what would you do before Amazon? Like, what was that lead up to it? Because I don't think anyone just naturally just says, I'm going to work at Google or Amazon or a big, big tech company right out of college. You, you maybe a lot of people have that build up to it. Was that your background to do a degree? Yeah. So I had a couple internships when I was in college. I went to the university of Denver. Um, I worked for my first job. I wanted to get as good sales experience as I could. I worked for a company called Paycom um, in the payroll space, competitive with like ADP. Probably see their commercials all over the place with um, Barbara from from Shark Tank or anything like that. Um, I worked for them. They, they do a great job of teaching you kind of core, you know, sales, um, I guess, functions, responsibilities, anything like that. And um, and then I worked for a company called Sumo Logic um, in the data space as well. Um, I worked there for a little while, um, and then I started my career out of college working for Sprint. I worked on their IoT and machine-to-machine team, um, as well as their their corporate business development team um, here in Denver, Colorado. Um, and then I was there up until basically right when they went through the merger with T-Mobile, um, mm. and then transitioned over to Amazon um, after that merger. Um, so yeah, it was a quite a whirlwind of experiences. I mean, Paycom when I was there was... Was, was operating like a startup. They definitely don't operate that way anymore. Um, mm. Anything with Sumo Logic, um, and then going and working for you know two large corporate entities from that perspective, large conglomerate organizations. I got a good feel of 
you know, different types of organizations. And, you know, the reason I went to Amazon was I really viewed that as, you know, kind of an MBA in e-com. Um, was really interested within the space. And um, and I always knew I was going to really go to Amazon for a couple of years and then move back into, you know, the smaller company, you know, SMB, mid-market kind of space um, where I could be more of a jack of all trades and be able to have more responsibility from that perspective. That's a good, that's a good perspective. I think that's a, a definitely a, a skill to have. And not a lot of people, they want to either stay somewhere very long, very long term, or you want to just get that different kind of feels and insights, right? Of, Hey, payment, payment startup mentality, which I've definitely been in. And then I've also gotten the, the corporate uh, structure too. I've worked for a Scripps Howard company. So that's a technology sold to USA Today um, to company. So I've, I've gotten the, the good and the bad and the ugly of, of everything too. But, um, but to get into e-commerce, your, your background, it didn't, it didn't seem like there was e-commerce background until you got into an e-commerce company. So I'm curious, did they see that as a pro, a con? Uh, what's that conversation like when you're going through like a, an interview process, if you will? Yeah, so I'll debrief the interview loop of Amazon a little bit. I mean, it's definitely kind of a weird loop. Um, it was a multiple month process. Um, you go through, I think I went through six interviews um, to be able to get the job inside of Amazon Global Selling. Um, and they have like what's called a bar raiser interview where you go basically through a, a table of discussions with mm-hmm five, six individuals in one day. I count that as one interview of my six. But right. Oh, wow. And these are people not in the same division too. If you read yeah. the book, yeah, I was going to say for, for, for reference, this is all laid out in the book, Working Backwards, which I actually just uh, consumed quite, uh, uh, pretty quickly. And it's all laid out and through there why this is the case. Super interesting concept. For yeah. Sure. Uh, a pretty high up, uh, my bar raiser for my interview was um, Amazon had purchased IMDB pretty I guess recently, maybe in the past year or so before. And uh, yeah. I think it was a VP at IMDB was, was one of my first interviews in the day. So it was a little overwhelming for sure. At, you know, at that time, 23 years old. Um, and it was definitely uh, it's a, it's an overwhelming loop comparatively to what you would experience at most um, interviews processes or anything like that. Um, and you've got to come prepared. Um, you know, they follow, you know, the star method situation, task, action, result. If you can't be able to break that down, if anybody's known of the star method in interviewing, if you can't break that down cleanly and concisely, it's a move and pass to the next person. Um, So they're very, very um, methodical in the way that they go about their interview process. It works very, very well, in my opinion, to be able to bring in top talent. Um, But yeah, it's quite rigid from that perspective. So you're going through this process, you call it like six full days of multiple interviews with different people in the industry. Um, Did you feel yourself of... Did you feel pretty confident throughout the process or did you have to look at yourself? You're like, man, this one person is probably going to think I'm an idiot or like they have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I don't, I don't know, I guess, of all the data that they're inputting to have one a role in a white collar job. Like you would call this a white collar job, right? Not a, something in the warehouse. So you're talking about this as a I'm working in an office or a representative of a division. Yep. That, that's a pretty important breakdown to have to have, right? How did you feel throughout that process? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely overwhelming for sure. Um, no, I would definitely agree with the, I guess, kind of white collar versus blue collar side of Amazon. You know, the blue collar being, you know, warehousing and yeah, things hard, like that, more physical hard labor. Yeah. Yeah. And the logistics side, and uh, to be honest, they work a hell of a lot harder than, than the white collar in my side. Um, and they get worked to the bone. I mean, I think you can just read Twitter for, for a lot of that stuff and get the answers there. But um, I think the big thing, um, from, I guess, the white collar or the corporate side of the business is, you know, they're very thorough in the way that they go after people. Um, you know, they look for strong backgrounds of experience in large corporate companies. So I think my time 
you know, at Sprint and T-Mobile at a corporate organization, I think that they want that kind of assimilation with being able to work inside of a, a conglomerate as opposed to, you know, someone that was, you know, running their own, you know, kind of company or anything like that. But as I mentioned that as well, you know, I was running my own company while I was in college and I think they value the entrepreneurship aspect because how can you speak to Amazon sellers or people within this, you know, kind of the zeitgeist of Amazon, if you don't have that entrepreneurial spirit or you can't understand what it's like, you know, from a bottom line perspective of someone running an Amazon store or running a private label brand on, on e-com. So I think my experience of, of running my own company um, while I was in college and, um, and then working at a conglomerate or I guess a corporation afterwards at the end of college, I think that kind of pairing of those two was, was, was what was attractive to get me at least in the door. Um, and then I think, you know, beyond that is really what they look for is um, there's, there's a lot of personality traits that they really target within that side of, of people for global selling um, from that perspective, mostly on, around entrepreneurship, personable, anything you'd seen obviously within sales. And then they look for people that can use data. Um, so Amazon, as you can probably read from anywhere, is one of the most data centric and data driven companies in the world. Um, and in your interview process, you need to come prepared like yeah. with exactly tangible data. And a lot of people within sales, like, I mean, Ryan, you've met lots of people within sales over the years. I'd say 70% of the time they don't come prepared with a lot of sales. Right. So, you can right. sniff for lack of a better term, sniff BS from oh, a yeah. while away. If you, if you ask them questions and they can't answer them for you, I think that's, uh, that makes sense in the interview mentality of, Hey, what do you, what do you see about this, about the growth trajectory? Put that in front of you and say, like, what, what do you forecast and see? Like, what, what do you need to change here and there? I think that was also, that's pretty prevalent in their books too. Of They would always, numbers might look good at one way, but hey, is that really the underlying reason of, hey, there's not growth here. Like, what is it? And you have to look at different areas of yeah. build out processes years in advance so that you can catch it before it goes on a downward trajectory. So that's a really difficult uh, ta or a, a talent to uh, teach. So you have to come prepared with that. That's interesting. For sure. Yeah. I think they're methodical and I guess a more inflammatory would be more maniacal in the way that they go about a lot of, <laughs> a lot of these kind of processes or anything like that. Sure. Um, and they, they adhere to that. Like anything you read within that is it's pretty much the truth from that perspective. Right. So why, why global selling division? Like uh, Amazon has, you, you can go on LinkedIn right now and there's thousands upon thousands of jobs, anywhere from like obviously engineering, sales, AWS, like there, there's so many divisions to go on. Why global selling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for me, you know, I had a, I had a personal contact um, that I had known um, that worked at Amazon and worked in the global selling side and had spoken extremely highly of it. Um, and he was a lot like me um, in the way that he's gone about his career or anything like that. And I think just that familiarity made me intrigued. Um, obviously, a lot of people that go to Amazon, they really do it for the resume more than anything. And I did, I can't say that I didn't do it for that as well. I mean, having Amazon on your resume opens up a lot of doors. It can propel your career, anything like that. I mean, it's not just Amazon. You work at Microsoft, Google, large companies within the tech space. It can really propel you to, you know, strong that next position. But I think the big thing about why global selling was really interesting to me is that it is a very entrepreneurial environment. It's very um, centric to that. And that's, something that I've always, you know, been in from, from early childhood, you know, um, starting company when I was in college or, you know, whether it was you know, calling up local businesses when I was like an eight year old kid trying to figure out how I could purchase them or stuff like that. Like I was always very intrigued in in this kind of process from a very young age. So I think it just really followed within me from a personality trait. And I think that's something that not a lot of people really 
they, they think about in the subconscious, but not as consciously as they should within when they're going after, you know, their things in their career. I think a lot of people really just go for, you know, how do I get to this step or this step or that? Like you have to do things that line up with you and your personality traits to be able to have success. So I think that was a big thing for me. Um, the reality is I would say, you know, a lot of the people that go into the Amazon global selling side, they're doing that as a step stone to get to AWS. Um, a lot of people want to work in AWS, so they'll take a job in global selling. So and that's the, that's the thing. That's the stepping stone of where you're trying to get to is AWS. For sure. And I had, I had no interest um, in AWS, not because I don't think it's a great organization or, you know, an extremely competitive product, obviously, and anything like that. I just, the thing for me was I was more intrigued about the e-com space and eventually running my own company or doing something later in my career. And um, AWS wasn't really in line with that for me, but I have a lot of colleagues that have, have transferred over to AWS or anything like that. And um, just as competitive as Amazon Global Selling and all of Amazon is, AWS is the cream of the crop within that space in terms of sales. I mean, it's high, high growth metrics, sales metrics. And if you don't make it, it's... See yeah, you're out the door. Well, so, I mean, that, that's the curious thing too, is when you're talking about talent, it used to, it used to feel like Google was the the toughest one to even attempt and get through the door. I mean, I've had in my past, I've had interviews with Google. I've had interviews with you know social media networks, and they ask you like the why, and then you start that process. And it's always interesting to get their their perspective. And it was always it felt like Google was the one that was the toughest. But I think it's shifted a lot in the tech and e commerce space. Of Amazon is really inherently difficult to get into um, if it's the right fit or not. It used to be that was the focus. I don't know if that's shifted in years past, but what's kind of like in your mind, sure. what, what's that as an employee kind of like going into it, you say everyone does it for like a resume builder. Is that, is that apparent from if that's, if that's a notion that everyone kind of has going into it, is that received by Amazon? They're like, we know you're not going to be here forever now because yeah. I think in the past there was one of people to be loyal, rewarding and that, and that's pretty public knowledge of we're going to pay you this, but then, hopefully give you like equity down long-term for like rewarding growth and uh, being loyal to the company. What, what's that Amazon side of things you think? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the big thing within, within that, I guess, is, you know, it, you definitely feel it within the culture of what I spoke to of when you get in, you can tell who's doing it for a stepping stone. You can tell who's not. Um, and they're all high performing people. I mean, you don't get a job at Amazon if you don't have at least the aptitude. Right. You're not pushing paper and you're just like no. taking a nap. In the no, this, isn't, this is not Dunder Mifflin where you're just throwing paper or anything like that. But no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not super geniuses or anything like that. It's not like it was at like Apple back in the day or anything, you know, Wozniak or anything like that. But I think the big thing is you have very hungry I guess shark mentality kind of people within that org and and it bleeds into the the culture of that organization um especially at you know what i would call more of like the entry mid-level of where i was at with inside of amazon um and then you get into like the director roles vps those are the guys that stay there for you know five six seven years and the reality is is the guys that come into those roles a lot of the times they don't grow from the entry level or the mid-level that i was at they come from external um you know interesting I, my director came from newegg um, came over into Amazon, um, you know, Yaw, uh, Wen, who's, who's now at a competitive org, uh, Pioneer, um, he's a VP of North America over there. Um, he came from different organizations before and stayed at Amazon for a very long time. Um, but the entry level and the mid-level, a lot of these people are coming in, you know, one, two, you know, first job out of school, second job out of school, not typically first job. Um, mostly it's the second job or third job out of school. Um, and they stay there for, 
know, a couple of years and they move on to the next experience, anything like that. They, um, they definitely have a reputation of, uh, and I think this isn't, you know, crossing a boundary or anything like that of, of using individuals like myself to get the growth metrics that they need, get that to there. And if you want to stay within the organization, there is hundreds of different things to be able to get to that next level. You can speak to anybody at that entry level, mid level, the, almost like dissertations or proposals you need to put together. It's almost like you're writing a, a thesis of like a PhD to be able to get a promotion. It's not purely off of your performance. Okay. You have to perform. You have to create something new and different within the org that you're in. That's like a big thing with inside of Amazon. You have to change something systematically. And then you also have to go through, you know, another bar raising kind of example of, proving your metal and your worth of why you should get that next level up. Whereas at most companies it's, Hey, you've done this job. Well, you're basically doing the next job. Let's just give you the promotion. And I think there is a two edged sword to that, that creates a level of like competition and dynamic inside of Amazon that I think has a toxic element to it. But I think there is a positive to that as well as you're always feeling like you're, you're getting the best of the organization out of people. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's pluses and minuses to everything from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's very much apparent within the culture. Um, and I think you can see that's why there's a high turnover rate even inside of you know the corporate culture. It's not because people don't have success or aren't good at their job. It's um, because they don't want to fit into that environment or that culture a lot of time. Well, I feel like you'd have to be on 100% of the time, right? Like not yeah. that you shouldn't go to any job and not give your best foot forward, but to constantly be aware of that factor, but then also feel like there's other people that if you even let up just for a microsecond, Someone could be in there, swoop in, perform at a different function, whether it be sales or whether it be tech or engineering or anything like that. There, there's that mentality of if I'm not on and being aware of my constant swivel mentality, you're going to get subverted from someone underneath you or right next to you. So I, I can imagine that not being exhausting on oh, a day-to-day yeah, basis. Sure. I, mean, I only took like two days off in two years. Um, really? Yeah. I was going to say, was there like a... It's not like a trade, like a startup mentality of like, hey, you get unlimited PTO, like no. you're accruing like days off, but I'm yeah, assuming you have, like you have like minute by minute PTO accrual. Like it's not like other companies wow. where it's unlimited. You have to earn the PTO. And honestly, like it's almost revered to not it, it's not something that's really spoken of of like using PTO or anything like that. Like it's not like they're like sitting there like you have to work and like putting your head down or something. Like it's not it's not that intense, but because there is so much growth metrics. And because everybody in Amazon is someone I think that wants to be a higher performer, it creates an inherent culture of, of having that done. And I actually had an analogy that I would say to you know, my manager or the director at the time. And um, I think a lot of us felt like racehorses um, where, you know, if you win the Belmont or anything like that, okay, great. You won, you won a race. That's awesome. But like, can you win the triple crown? Yeah. And you do it over and over. Then what's the next year? If you start to really slip off or anything like that, they're ready to send you to the glue factory. Like that is the truth. Um, and that's, t- that's tough to hear. I had, you know, I had people within the organization, even in the management level or direct level, and obviously you know, keep it to the names or anything like that. But sure. um, I think the big thing was, you know, I talked to them about that and I would tell them the analogies or anything like that. And they're like, you know, sometimes at Amazon, like you have to have rose colored glasses. Like you have to pretend and, feel that everything is right because there's so many things going on inside of the Oregon. This isn't, I think a lot of things that you read on Twitter or these social medias, like they're, they're just condemning Amazon for a lot of bad practices, anything like that. I think the reality is, is it's such a huge organization. It's hard to control everything. 
Um, and there's so many fires going on over the place. It's like that, the meme of the dog where this is fine or anything yeah. like that. Like that I, just, is, I was sent that today by my manager. Exactly. Like, and that's the truth of a lot of orgs, but like at Amazon, like it is really crucial. You have to be able to be someone that can compartmentalize very well and be able to say, okay, like X, Y, Z things are completely broken and wrong, but how do I move on to the next thing? And then like, we'll eventually fix those. But the reality is a lot of the times they don't ever get fixed because people are moving so fast. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really just moved on to the next person, the next person, the next person. And I think, you know, even, I think that's a part of it is when they're bringing in the people that are young in their career, like, unless you are a different breed of an individual, what I just described is very difficult to do, to be able to have systematic change at a young point in their career. And I don't think that they enable people to also make those changes at a young point in their career. So it's kind of a catch 22 from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's why I feel like that, that'd be a tough situation to be in of you want to prove yourself, but then obviously, like you said, you might be two, two days and two years. I mean, the, the greatest minds in this space, they, they need that kind of like decompression. I mean, I don't even know if you were working weekends. I mean, a lot of us are just tied into For sure. day to day. Like we can get Slack messages, we can get emails and we have to feel like we, we have to respond to those in a, in an age of where we are today. Um, so I'm, I'm curious from an organizational standpoint, you're in a global selling division. Who are you interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis? Is it typical for you to just be siloed or is, do you guys talk with cross, um, you know, cross categories and departments and things like that? Or do you guys just like hang out like, Hey, Slack channel, this is only Amazon global selling and that's it. Yeah. Um, there's not, there's like a ton of cross functionality across the different teams. So I'll, I'll break down what sure. global selling inside of Amazon looks like. So there's the EU division, which is UK, France, Italy, all of the ones underneath basically that are transacting in Euro from that perspective, obviously familiar from that, from the payment side, they're all kind of connected. Of together. Um, to be. Yeah. So that's, that's a huge division inside of Amazon. Um, you know, their growth metrics, the numbers that they're hitting on a monthly perspective are far higher than, you know, countries like, you know, Brazil or the UAE, which are much, you know, well, selling is so much higher in those countries. Yeah. Obviously, if you look at breakdown, us is number one, number two and three or two, two and two, a or UK slash, um, Germany, and then it kind of goes from there. You have Japan, then you have it bounces around. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, so there's you know there's Australia, Japan. They they work kind of cross functional really well with one another. Um, you know Haley Smith was um, was leading the team for Australia and Japan. I worked with her for a really long time. Really really great. If Haley sees this, she's awesome. Um, their team is really really great, and they work against one another and work with one another really well. Brazil is its own division, Middle East is its own division. They're all siloed from that perspective. But I think the reps have really strong relationships with one another because we kind of learn from one another, figuring everything out. Um, and I think, at a, you know, transparently, I don't really know what is like at the director level of working, you know, what the Middle East team is working with the Brazil team or anything. I think they are pretty siloed from that perspective, from what I sure. saw. Um, but I think the big thing is um, it's even more than that. There, There is local teams in each one of the countries as well. So um, you know, in the Middle East, we have what's called, so there's, you know, 3P or, or US seller, which is the team that I was on. So you're bringing US sellers, Canadian sellers, people from North America, anything like that, having them sell in the Middle East. Okay. There are domestic sellers as well. So Dubai, Emirati, anything like that, people that are working in Dubai and want to sell on Amazon have domestic, they have different gating for their products. They have different things. So they're able to sell things that we can't sell. And you're all ASIN hunting to a degree. You're going after, you know, the top selling ASINs because you have a sales metric, anything like that. So it actually creates a culture where, you know, there's a local team in Dubai where like 
they're actually incentivized to try to beat you and you're a part of Amazon. So you're actually competing against people that also are W2, you know, Amazon. So they're, they're trying to find sellers in the UAE, for example, competitively versus you guys finding outside of UAE trying to sell into you. Yeah. And they can sell all the same products that we can, uh, much theoretically. Higher. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And I mean, they basically have all gating responsibilities gone because they can prove, you know, to buy general trading licenses, all these different things that are really hard to obtain outside of get you know, goods into the country. So on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And then you also add on the logistics cost of having to ship into that country across an entire, you know, ocean from that perspective, you know, the, the freight costs are much higher from, you know, someone that's based in the region that has product there and is selling it. Um, so it's very different. It creates a very different competitive balance. Um, and I think that only increases the, you know, the hunter and the competitive mentality of the U.S. to the MENA team that I was on. Sorry about that. I was uh, editing something in our little comment section. Um, sure. Interesting. So for any listeners out there, so I'm in the global selling division. What's the day-to-day like? So you and I were talking about this the other day, and so I found so fascinating of, hey, I got the job. I start on Monday. On Monday, what is that first day like? Like the day one mentality of what's day one look like for an Amazon? I'm really curious. Yeah, I think it's different for every team too. Like I can't speak what it's like from, you know, from not software engineer or anyone else outside of Amazon. But I think the the day one inside of Amazon is what they speak to is having that apt excuse me the, that the appetite and the thirst for knowledge of wanting to learn from day one. And I think for me, it was like there was no onboarding you know, for me, like it was no training, no, nothing. N- no. Um, Maybe yeah. how long is your computer? These are the resources you have available. Go get yeah, it. I think a part of that too, in fairness to the org, like, you know, it's completely remote. And at the beginning of a pandemic, like, realistically, yeah, people, people are trying to figure out what's up. Like, was it, was this role going to always be remote? I'm just curious. Like, as a no, okay, no, this is going to be in a office. Yeah. Um, so I was living in Seattle at the time. Um, and I'd always wanted to come back to Denver. I've had a house here for a while and, um, that was a big part for me as well. A part of the reason I left the organization when I did was, you know, the pandemic was starting to ease a little bit. I mean, we'll see, fingers crossed, but, um, you know, things were starting to ease and I knew that they were going to bring people back into an office at least minimum three days a week, in my opinion. Um, it's a very in-the-office centric kind of company. I don't know if that'll change with Jassy versus Bezos or anything like that, but um, I think that was a big thing for me was that it was not going to be a remote role or a role where I would have more flexibility, which I think a lot of people are craving. And I think transparently will be an issue for Amazon why you're seeing, you know, they're raising the base pay or the structure is because they're going to have a big challenge competing with the Microsofts or anybody that is offering the ability to be remote. Yeah. It's um, a, it's a benefit now all of a sudden yeah. that it's something that no one had to compete with because everyone was going to an office. Now it's a thing where, Hey, people crave that attention. Like I like walking down my steps from my bedroom down to my office and not driving 30 minutes to work. It's a nice yeah. thing. Some people don't feel that way, but yeah, it is a, it's now a benefit. Yeah. I like the ability to go in when I want to go in. And, and for us, it's like, you know, I'll fly to, to New York to see, you know, leadership for, for ping pong, or I'll go to San Mateo to our office out there, like, or we'll go to events and especially in e-com, like there's so many events to go to or anything like that, that you can always kind of be around people and have that, you know, I guess familial aspect of, of a company, but no, I, I will never want, and I, I didn't even like it when I first joined, which I think is why people kind of, you know, have issues with my generation of feeling like we don't want to work that hard or anything like that. But no, it's, I don't want to go into an office and drive an hour 
back and forth, you know, every single morning for five days a week. Um, and then in the afternoon at 5 p.m., like everybody has different time clocks and schedules and the way that they function as an individual. And I think it just gives you a level of flexibility that like, I think it should just be standard. And I felt that years ago. And obviously, um, you know, the pandemic has created that situation, which not worth it in my opinion in any way. Right. Form, but, so, so you left because of this was going to be an in-office role. This was going to be something that you had to be with uh, a section of these offices in downtown Seattle. Yeah. Um, not, not remote hundred percent. Interesting. So what was, was that? Yeah. I would say that. So that was like a 20% ask 30% aspect of why I left. There was a no, I mean, it's like, it's not a bad thing, but it's also not a, like a, it was like a, a major straw. factor. It, I would say it was like the straw that broke the camel's back of like, for me, it was like, it was starting to be like, okay, am I going to stay in Seattle and stay at this company for X more years? Or do I want to make the move now and, and go to a different org? Um, yeah. And that was the thing for me. Cool. So um, when you're going there, you're, you're not, you're not learning. I mean, you start at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's, Hey, start your job day one, walk me through some of your positions. So you're sale technically in a sales, but you're also helping assist customers trying to get into the country. First and foremost, did you have to speak any sort of foreign language or anything like that in order to like understand the localization or anything of that sort? No. So um, luckily in the region that I was in, I mean, it's very different for Japan or, um, you know, Mexico or anything where there's a lot of translation issues that they deal with from that perspective. Um, the UAE is, has a large amount of people that speak English um, as well as Arabic. So, um, but no, there was no requirement or anything in terms of, of knowing Arabic or um, being able to familiarize ourselves with that. I think the biggest thing was getting accustomed to the logistics challenges of getting into the free trade zone in Dubai or anything like that. Or when we launched Saudi Arabia, it was like, Hey, we opened up a warehouse, like just throw your stuff into a warehouse. Like there was really nothing other than that. When we launched, you can speak to anyone from that team. It was very difficult. So, um, you know, you're communicating with sellers on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, your classic third party resellers across every single region or replicators, anything like that, or, you know, it's a private brand in the U S that's trying to expand their, their global expansion, you know, across every single different region for, um, I guess funding or anything like that. Um, so everyone has kind of different reasons why they launch into each region. Um, mm -hmm. but you have metrics that you need to launch people to launch people and get them into those countries and have them selling. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of hurdles or hoops or things that get, that get passed around just to get people into a region from that perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. What about, so what are some of the metrics that like, what, what's important for Amazon in this capacity? Is it a, is it a revenue? Is it a number of sellers? It is a, is it a number of SKUs available? Like what, what are those breakdowns of weight of importance? Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's two teams inside of each division inside of Amazon global selling. So there's what they call DSR. So it's direct seller recruitment from that perspective or direct seller representative is a DSR rep. Um, or ESM, which is existing seller management. So it's kind of account management upselling versus, you know, net new business. So from a DSR side, you have two real key goals that they care about, I guess, three from that perspective. But the two really large ones are a launch goal. So that's how many sellers you launch in a fiscal year. Um, and I think a lot of the times it was, you know, people trying to launch hundred or stuff like that in different countries, anything like that. So um, it's pretty difficult rep by rep to, to be able to get that when a lot of people launch on their own, you have to actually personally recruit them, personalize links, anything like that. Um, and they can launch on their own. They can just go on the website and do it themselves. So um, you're responsible for 
I guess, bringing them into the region and then managing for them for that 12 years, excuse me, not 12 years, geez, 12 months. That'd be a long metric. Yeah. Geez. Impossible uh, to track. Yeah. And then they have a GMS target. So gross merchandise sales. So basically a sales or a revenue target. Um, and that's different for each individual inside of the org, depending on, you know, if they're an L4 and L5, how long they've been inside Amazon as an employee, you have different you know, revenue targets, like any sales rep, the longer you stay at a company or your, uh, your target goes up year over year from that perspective. Um, and then the other one, the generous of them. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's normal everywhere, but, um, it's, it, it is aggressive at that org for sure. Um, and you don't really get much of a pay bonus, but it's okay. Um, but the bigger thing than that is, uh, there's another metric as well as the BAs. So, um, or BOs from that perspective, um, buyable offers. So that's the amount of ASINs that you bring into a region. So they have a metric of how many different products available on the site you bring into a country. And so they'll have like a metric of a million, two million, three million products you have to bring in. So you're highly incentivized to find sellers with more viable offers. So that really incentivizes you to go after a reseller that has 50,000 different products inside of electronics to have them come into a region versus a private label brand that has two products. Yeah. Unless they're super successful sales, you're not hitting your metric. And so that hits a catch 22 of, you know, you're going after a lot of these resellers or anything like that versus the private label brands where, you know, it's the mom and pops, anything like that. They get kind of thrown to the side unless they have ridiculously high sales and .com or anything like that. So what would be the benefit? Like if, I, if I'm a seller and you're coming to me, Eric, and you say, hey, Ryan, launching UAE, what's the benefit of like, I, was, I might say, yeah, I've been thinking about it. What's the benefit of me working with you versus me working, figuring out on my own? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, for example, like, it's not just in global selling, like, let's say like Amazon post or anything like, or like, um, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of all the programs they have as a seller, you have all these different, like little, um, depending on how much or how, how much you're selling or how long you've been a seller, you have opportunities, people reaching out via email and conversation, like I'm sure you were doing that or say, Hey, join, uh, Amazon XYZ program or whatever. It's a new beta program we're launching. Do you want to be a part of it? What What are the benefits of like just me kind of fiddling along, doing my own thing versus or self service model versus like a little bit of a hands on model that you're sure. About? Yeah, I think especially for these regions, like they offer free account management um, for that first year for these new countries and anything like that. So, you know, in the UK or anything like that, like it's it's not free. You have to pay for account management and. I don't know that they provide so much value to the, I don't, I, I was going to say like, what is, what does account management get you? Like for, for a yeah. new seller is like, Oh, I probably it's, should use this. What, what yeah, is it's like white listing into new countries. So, you know, you can be, you know, the first people into the country from that perspective, which helps you from, I guess, a margin perspective, you can really control the pricing of the products. And then that country at the beginning. Um, and when you're selling into a country like UAE or anything like that, like, there were people that were able to sell products for two times as expensive as they would in the U S so they make more money per product that they sell in that region, even though the, the, I guess the volume of people purchasing is lower, the amount per unit is a little bit higher than other countries, especially the U S where it's extremely saturated with sellers. Um, I think that's one big thing. I think another thing from an account management perspective is opening up to exclusive marketing opportunities, um, putting your products, especially for private labels, putting your products on front page from that perspective of the entire site of UAE or whether it's Brazil or Japan or anything like that. Um, they open you up to different opportunities that um, and exclusive offers that really nobody else can get unless you have account management. Um, but that's all really determined off sales to be honest with you. Um, 
So unless you're not, unless you're selling well in the country, they won't give you those things. Right. It's quid pro quo a little bit from that. Right. Aspect. Well, I mean, you have to prove yourself too. Like they want to, yeah. I mean, that's why the A you know, eight, nine algorithm, um, uh, is so what a lot of people are trying to figure out of what is it reward versus what is it, you know, uh, deter from people to like, do even on that level, are you, are you like having conversations with people of, Hey, this is going to reward you for like your rank and like, how, what is that conversation? Like, yeah. I can't imagine they're, they're asking like, how do I rank? Well, like, how do I stand sure. out? What are my translations? Like you're probably just as much equipped as an agency at that juncture than probably anyone in the space I'm thinking at the end of this. Having been out of Amazon and, and meeting different agencies and people in the SEO and I guess the PPC world, anything like that, that I can help with, with marketing, they know a hell of a lot more than I would say 80% of the reps inside of Amazon. Um, reps inside of Amazon, I think the, the last thing, I guess, to, to your last question of, all of, of what's a value or added service is they can raise specialized tickets within the platform that, you know, when you go through just seller support and raise a case, like, you're throwing it into a queue of hundreds of thousands. Right. And you might right. get a competent person. I mean, no offense to Amazon employees that are listening to this, but uh, you might get somebody who's never encountered that problem yes. or someone who's encountered a hundred of those. And they're like, yep, this is who I send it off to this yep. division. They might so not know that. Around the auto rejection aspect of, of Amazon from that perspective, it can help you not get suspended in regions, anything like that. Um, and it helps you with cross functionality against anything. So I think when you have an account manager in one country, you're having an issue in a different one they can personally reach out to someone in that country as well or and it can find and back channel things for you so i think that is a big value add especially when it's free um but i think that's really the majority of the things that that they provide from that but in terms of you know in terms of ranking or anything like that you know a lot of the stuff they try to keep close to the belt from that perspective amazon doesn't want to like really skew out of like okay this is exactly how you beat the system or anything yeah like that um, a lot of people try to find like localized reviews in each country, anything like that. They'll, and Amazon, I mean, you've seen this, Ryan, this is cracking down a lot of the fake review agencies or yep, lawsuits like, just happened recently. Exactly. So, um, you know, that was a big thing, especially in, in these new countries where they want to rank, you know, immediately in a brand new country and be number one on the charts. That was something that we experienced for sure within that. And that's not something that like reps assist you with or anything like that, but to say that they don't have a vested interest in you being number one um on a chart as a rep because that helps your gms target there is definitely a conflict of interest from that perspective as well so i was gonna say is there a lot of like internalized like you have to self-assess and see like you're bad actors on the outside and third-party perspective isn't that just as apparent you can possibly look inward and say shoot this person was working with this person day to day you can you can network web people together and say well yeah of course like this person did so well because they were allowing they had the back door open and anyone who knew this person as a bouncer could get into the club pretty quickly. Like you knew the guy who can let you in the room. It doesn't that have go both ways. Like it's not just externalized factors. Someone has to let them in through the door. Right. For sure. Yeah. I think the big thing is like, especially in my time, um, you know, the global selling side, like everybody has their own agendas and that's a, that's the reality at every company you work at. And you know, the ethical perspective of anything is a big thing. If you have a strong ethical standpoint, like you're not going to, cut a corner just to do better. Um, but, you know, there are bad actors inside of every org. It's not just the sellers. Right. People cutting corners. There are, you know, reps inside of Amazon. And I would say I didn't have really familiarity with them on the U.S. side. I saw it more at um, the domestic teams or anything like that or different things like that where, you know, you could see, you know, you can log into any seller central when you're a rep. Um, 
I can log into someone that is not my account and go into their seller central and see what products they're doing, anything like that from that perspective, keywords, any of that kind of stuff. And so there is a lot of data at your disposal. And that's why you see a lot of these data protection issues at Amazon or anything like that. And I think they'll just become more stringent on that over time. Um, but it's really down to the rep to like, you know, they, they instruct you, like, you can't do these things like you will be terminated or anything like that. But the reality is that some people still bend those corners and, and do the things they can. And, you know, even when I was at Amazon, I think I think beyond that as well as, I mean, you're constantly offered uh, consultancy. Inci- incentives. Yeah. Incentives is the way to say it. Uh, you're, you're external offered, incentives. Yes, for sure. Um, I definitely had multiple sellers or, or things like that that I dealt with within the region or my time or had known of other people that were offered um, things and, um, you know, you just report that um, and, and go after that. But to say that that has never happened where someone took an incentive to help someone, that's just not the truth. I mean, you can just look at articles online or, um, you know, any indictments or things like that from that perspective, like it, it's happened. Um, and that's the truth at every company. That's not respected to just Amazon. It's that Amazon's in the limelight and, another commercial entity more than anything. So that's why it gets a lot of the pop popularized things within media. And, you know, obviously um, from a congressional standpoint, it just goes even further from there where it's yeah. a hot button issue. So. Yeah. We won't get into politics of it. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, I know that Amazon partners with so many people. We're one of those companies that we work for um, and not, and we're, I'll go more off of your personal experiences. My, my question is, I guess, learning all these things and kind of at disposal i hear from a lot of sellers if they're listening to this or service providers there there's this barrier that for some reason there's just not a lot of give and take like there if you talk third-party sellers we were talking about this the other day of if you broke it down 30 party sellers alone they would be the number one marketplace in the entire world yep that's that's a fact that's just how it breaks down in the org of amazon revenue breakdown everything like that why is there not more of a, a push to either empower, but also just like have that partnership more of the forefront instead of a, it feels like there's fighting on every single level yeah. from a third party's perspective to get onto the platform and from Amazon side, like Amazon just resists trying to give more help in that regards. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a, it's, and it's opinionated uh, answer. Sure. I understand that, but yeah. what's your best case? Yeah, I think the real the real thing, I think the first aspect of that is obviously it's a large organization where you know everyone has different agendas, you know, where you have a culture of people stair stepping to the next company, whether it's internally, externally, like everyone has their own agenda. And when you do that at such a mass level, a lot of the people that are really the core function of Amazon, which is the sellers on the platform, they get kind of thrown to the wayside. And I know that, you know, Bezos in the past talked about, you know, the sellers being our partners, anything like that. Um, I think if you spoke to any seller, even the most successful ones that are third party, um, you know, my, my token, or I guess my, uh, my phrase for it is always that it's more of an arranged marriage. Um, they need you as more of a search engine. Um, you know, Amazon's like Google from that perspective for a lot of private label third party sellers from that perspective. And they use you to really get the brand out there or anything like that. But when it comes to really helping them or, you know, as simple as something as changing their bank information or anything like that, like it can get, thrown to the wayside and no one can get it fixed or people will get suspended for a superfluous, um, you know, false review on their product or anything like that. And they get shut down for months and lose sales. Like they do a pretty, I, I try to stray away from saying they do a poor job of that because 
I think they are trying their best. And I think there are people within Amazon seller help that are really, um, you know, doing a great job of this from um, the worldwide consumer part of the team now. Um, but I think it's something that has become much more in the forefront of Amazon because they've been called the carpet for it for years now that they're yeah. really starting to put, um, I guess, the budget and team and um, I guess the attention towards more than anything. Um, and I think that will change to be able to to help them long term because, you know, when I was inside of Amazon, um, you know, the big brands are are not operating as sellers on their own. They don't want to deal with that. Um, you know, the the Clorox, the cotton out, the, the big brands that you see that are, you know, the PNGs, anything like that, like they're not operating the their own. P, yeah. They just throw the stuff to one P, they sell it to Amazon, Amazon resells it basically as a wholesale operation from that perspective. And so I think from that perspective, you could see that even start to trend further and further because, you know, they, they do want to have more control. That's a, that's a core centric thing inside of Amazon is they want to control the product and they want to control the supply chain. From that perspective, you can see that in their purchasing behavior, with, um, logistics, anything like that. I think the big thing beyond that is, you know, that leaves the the middleman, the, the, not the middleman, but the, the, the small man inside of the sellers, um, you know, the everyday third party seller, um, they get thrown to the wayside when, when a lot of those things are the more core centric part of it, where, you know, the third party sellers are really what, what built Amazon from the beginning. Well, um, it's still true today. I mean, you see again, revenue wise, literally if everyone decided to stop, which again, not like just call it a hypothetical. If everyone's decides to stop, move to like one other platform in yep. theory, you can take away Amazon as Amazon is known today. It would, it would not be the same thing. That being said, again, it's like an arranged marriage, but both need each other. What, what is it? The, the conversation is always like people, Amazon's more quick to, to um, punish, but long to forgive. And it's all, and it's always an uphill battle of, Hey, we're going to get shut down. Um, I was talking with the CEO of, of Riverman, who's still, um, Joe Zalta today, and he was telling me his background story. He goes for months. I was, I had no idea why I was suspended. I talked to my now business partner and uh, co-founder. We, she figured out what what to do. And for months as a seller, I didn't know what to do. And I still to this day don't know. And this was years ago. I don't know why my listing was taken down, why my product was flagged or anything like that. There's no. There's no communication in that regards. And I think that's what's super frustrating for sellers is if they knew what was wrong, they would fix it and move on and not try to circumvent it. I think yeah. Amazon feels like everything that sellers try to do is circumventing the system, not to, yeah. they just wish it was more of a focus. And like, these are guidelines we're going to work within the guidelines and not change every other day. Yeah. Where does it, it go from here? I mean, transparently, I need to do a far better job inside of Amazon to be able to to help the people that are doing legitimate business on that platform that aren't at one P to be able to be successful and to not shut down their business because they're really just hoping. And it's a constant state of anxiety for a lot of these sellers from that perspective where they're worried, like you could take down my top selling ASIN and it goes away in five minutes. And like, what do I do? Like yeah. how do I get that fixed? And I think the big thing of, of what I even talked about inside of Amazon as well as um, I guess you, there, there's an opinion on this as well, but um you know, the, the, the saying of innocent to proven guilty is the inverse, in my opinion, for a lot of the sellers. Um, it is guilty until proven innocent, um, until you can prove without a shadow of a doubt that there is not one thing in your supply chain, not one thing in the way you operate in Seller Central, not one thing in the way you operate with customers through reviews or asking for reviews, anything like that. If you can't prove that with 
absolute certainty. The second you have one little chink in the armor, that's it. And so I think that has to be changed. Um, would say that 95%, it's probably higher than that. It's probably 98, 99% of sellers on side of Amazon are operating, doing the right things inside of Amazon, doing everything from an upstanding business perspective. And then there are the bad actors, but unfortunately it's the bad actors that, you know, they cast dispersions on the whole thing. It, it, it calls Amazon to the carpet on a lot of the bad stuff that's going on, but they need to build, build a better, um, I guess, system of being able to escalate a lot of these things um, yep. so that the people that are doing legitimate business um, can be able to continue to do legitimate business and it doesn't affect them and shut down their business overnight. Um, so I guess in the few minutes we have left, Eric, what is, I'm curious to think, what would it take for Amazon to like massively overhaul or like make these changes? Like, is it an externalized um you know, is, is it Shopify coming up and making really big waves? Is it Walmart figuring out, hey, we're going to focus and we provide a better solution for people to, you know, get in retail, but also online, a better ecosystem, so on and so forth. What is it going to take for like them to feel pressure that they have to make these wide, wide swept changes? Yeah. And obviously, you know, this is my opinion. Opinion. Um, Again, these are all opinions. We get it. Obviously, like, you know, if I knew the true answer to that, I probably would still be at Amazon in a higher role. But you, you would be an L1 or I forget no, what the highest L7. is, but L7. I don't even know if there is an L1. That's the technically the lowest, like L7, L8, L10, all the way to L13, which I think was Bezos or anything like that. But um, yeah, which the hierarchical part of that is another topic. But um, <laughs> anyways, I think the big thing that will put the most pressure on them is the more they get called out publicly. Um I think the biggest things inside of from a third party seller and, um, you know, I guess the seller sell the seller central kind of centric folks within this space. Um, the more that they talk about the issues and the problems within the space, like those words do matter. Um, and the more public that they are, um, the more, I guess, anecdotes that they have within that. I mean, they have things where they collect what's called the voice of seller um, where reps will, show, hey, this is something bad happening to them. They populate that up and up and up. I don't really think those go to They honestly, uh, if you've seen The Office where, you know, Michael Scott is a complaint box and it's like complaints from 10 years ago, that's what it feels like. Like they don't go anywhere. Um, so I think having something where, you know, it's a true voice of seller where um, you can escalate that really straight to the top, anything like that. And I think it should be done something that's external where, um, you know, a seller can can publicly post these things. I mean, they can put it on Twitter. They can do anything they want from that perspective. And um, a lot of times at these big organizations, that's the way that it affects change. Um, in terms of what will make them change immediately, um, I think it would be higher level of competition from, you know, Walmart plus um, a Shopify, anything like that, where if they are allowing, I guess they they bring down the curtains and they allow, you know, a lot of these resellers to compete and make a lot of the same amount of money without a lot of the same issues. Like for example, a perfect example of this when I was in the UAE is, you know, you have Amazon AE and then you have a company called noon.com. Um, I worked with multiple sell noon is like basically like the equivalent of like, you know, a vitamin shop or uh, an iHerb or it's a lower level um, e-com company comparatively to Amazon in terms of purchasing power, anything like that, but they're still very successful, great company um, in the, the Middle East and sellers I worked with were like, I make the same amount of money on noon.com with 10% of the issues. Like, why wouldn't I just divert all my time there? 
the reality is, is they won't fully divert their time because they make enough money on Amazon to keep them around. But if they had other avenues where they could make money, so if Shopify did a better job of helping them with growth from that perspective, anything like that, I mean, Shopify is, has their own issues, anything like that. And same thing with Walmart. I mean, if Walmart started to expand globally, like that would force Amazon to make some systemic changes across the board. So I think as we see our e-com grow over the next couple of years where you know, there's more and more companies getting into, I guess, the global expanded space of this um, and become more competitive, even in the North American marketplaces where .com is prevalent and CA, anything like that. I think that will pressure them to really fix a lot of these core issues where people have been talking about them for years. Um, and I think that's what's going to make the big difference is it's going to be twofold. It's going to be a money, it's a cost perspective for them of, okay, we make these changes now because we don't want to lose potential revenue. And then I think a big part of it is how much they're called out publicly. So I think those two things are pretty crucial to um, making the changes in effect. And I know that we've, I guess the first part of that has been happening for years. Um, but the competitive part has really not been happening up until pretty recently. Amazon was kind of operating pretty much on their own in terms of from a seller perspective at a third party is really the, where you could make most of your money. Yep. Uh, but I think the more people that get involved in that space and you can actually make money. I think that's going to change a lot of things. Yep. Anything that can affect the bottom line, I think that's the quickest way to, to, yeah. to move. And yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see in the next, you know, year or two, what that ultimate feeling is like, you can probably see the, the jazz, the Jesse effect, you know, of, sure. Hey, this is, this is my vision now of the leader. And I think a lot of people are thinking it's like both a pro and a con, like what's happening. Hopefully things are overhauling because it was messy. The end of the term, again, it's all opinionated and at, at, at scale can get messy, but that's the cool thing about being in e-commerce. Like I guess in the last couple of minutes, Eric, that I have you, what's the most exciting thing that you're seeing that's happening, whether you see on an Amazon side, or do you see it on, um, you know, e-commerce side? Do you think? Yeah, I think the most exciting part of e-com, and it's something that I guess was happening at a smaller level years ago, um, but I think it's the ability for anyone with an entrepreneurial spirit to be able to get involved in a sourcing perspective, create their own brand, um, and grow something from scratch on their own in their house. I mean, especially when we were going through a pandemic, anything like that, like. You know, if you could build a company in your bedroom, like that's that's really unique. And that's what the tech world was like. And that's why, you know, the e-com space right now reminds me a lot of when I was, I guess, really young, um, but going through uh, the early 2000 tech bubble. And, um, you know, I was living in Seattle and my dad was in that space. And I saw that as a young kid and, um, you know, people were buying things to buy things. I mean, you see that at an aggregator level now inside of Amazon where people are buying brands to have brands like they have high acquisition metrics, anything like that. Like it reminds me a lot of the early 2000s tech bubble. And I think that's like anything in the world, there will be winners to that and there will be losers to that. Um, to the winner go the spoils. And that's that's just the truth of most things in life. And I think that that's very exciting for the people that that can follow that approach and, and do it in, um, I guess, a very analytical and, and methodical way from that perspective. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I think time will tell and innovation will keep happening. I was telling someone the other day, like software solutions are still continuously blowing my mind and how they're enabling to look at a holistic e-commerce view, D2C, Amazon, so on and so forth. Payment solutions are continuing to evolve, translations, you name it. it it's There's so many different cool partners and companies out there. And speaking of which, 
nice little segue here. Uh, for people who want to know and learn more about stuff, Eric and I, believe it or not, him and I will be connecting at the Prosper Show. Oh, let's get that other graphic out of there. Uh, the Prosper Show, join Ping Pong Payments at booth 532, March 14th through 16th. Eric, I'm super excited to be going and meeting, obviously, with you in person, but we're going to be talking with sellers and service providers all over the world in Vegas. So Absolutely. tell me a little about what your expectations are for that. I have never been <laughs> to Vegas for one. So same here. We we uh, both have that. People people don't believe me that I've never been to Vegas. I don't know what's so hard yeah. about that. Just never yeah. gone. Um, I think it's probably a safe place for me not to be <laughs> uh, from a gambling perspective. But um, uh, yeah, I think uh, anybody that'll be out there, I'm happy to you know try to expend some chips back to the company just to. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I think it'll be really fun. Um, I think there'll be a lot of opportunity for us to meet, um, you know, people all across the e-com world and, and I guess retail as a whole as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a long time for me really going to a conference within anything. Um, so it's going to be really cool to see a lot of people all within one space and, um, you know, seeing a lot of that thought leadership or I guess just learning from one another. So anybody that's going to be out there, um, feel free, um, message me directly. I'd be happy to take anybody out to dinner or go out to anything within Las Vegas. And um, I'll be out there for from Sunday to Wednesday. So I'll be there the, pretty much the entire time. Yeah. Eric told me he's willing to expense anything. Um, yep. If has to do, uh, all you have to do is just talk with him. So if you're looking yep. for a free I'm just I agree. <laughs> he said, he's going to, he's going to put it all on his card. So I'm looking yep. forward to taking advantage of that. So, but Eric, yeah. Hey, if people want to learn uh, more, obviously we, how they want to get in touch with you, they know how to find me. How do they, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, feel free to direct message me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, my, my email is just my name. So it's eric.schutzler at pingpongx.us. Um, so you can find that anyway. But um, I would just message me directly on, on LinkedIn. Um, you can probably find me on Twitter or anything like that as well. But um, that's the best way to get in touch with me across anything. I mean, if you just have questions about, you know, what's it like at Amazon as a whole, it doesn't have to be about, you know, obviously I work at Pingpong, um, you know, what we do within the payment space. But if you just have questions across e-com, anything like that, I'm happy to to chat or, or give advice on on anything with inside of Amazon, anything like that. So um, feel free to message me and uh, I'll send everybody, you know, my personal cell. I don't hide that or send you guys like a, a VoIP number or anything to call into. Eric doesn't spam. He, uh, I'll, I'll say this. He doesn't spam. He only reaches out and he knows a lot of people in the space. Him and I are very cut from similar cloth. We like connecting people and finding uh, ways. We did that recently, right? We helped a client out with, uh, network with between our two networks, we helped a client out solve a problem, right? Yep. We got them, got them unsuspended or something like that yep. happened. Something crazy happened, which I'm glad that that did work out, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. We're doing this live, so I don't know if we put them in. Oh yeah, it, it, or not. everything all worked out, and I mean, we do that across the board, and, and that's all that really sales is anyway. It's just connecting the dots and being yeah. able to talk to different people. So, yeah, happy to help anybody with anything across the ecom world. Don't feel like you're bugging me with a question. I know people kind of have their own you know, worries of messaging somebody they don't know or anything like that. Like I'm happy to chat with you about anything. You can ask me about sports too. I don't care. <laughs> Big sports, but yeah, he like he plays miniature basketball in his back, back, oh, yeah, uh, cool. background too. So my seven-year-old would be having a blast doing that right now. But anyways, Eric, I know it took a lot of your time. Thank you so much for hopping across over commerce. It's really cool on a Friday to kind of look behind the curtain, if you will, um, to kind of see your experience. I know a lot of people kind of theorize like what it's like. I think there's a lot of cool, I'm sure there's really cool perks and things like that. And you felt really cool saying it, but obviously that entrepreneur spirit, it lives pretty true with you. So I'm glad that we get to work together. And obviously um, 
it's awesome to have you on today. Now, friend of the podcast. I just yeah, yeah. don't have to say friend of the friend of work, but friend of the podcast now, Eric yeah. Schitzer of uh, Ping Pong, obviously. Yeah. So thanks for hopping on today. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. And everyone else, thank you for hopping on Crossover Commerce today. Um, this is episode 222, a uh, lovely number to round out today on the Friday, uh, February, let's call it the 25th. If you're listening to this, thanks for listening to us on your favorite podcast destination or if you're watching us live, thanks for just tuning in for a little bit. I saw a lot of people out there just uh, staying the whole time listening to Eric. Um, didn't get questions today, but if you have questions in the future, feel free to tag Eric or I can point you to him. Just connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook or any social media platform. But this is Crossover Commerce episode 222. Next week, we have a lot of live episodes lined up, so don't miss out next week. Uh, like I mentioned before, check us out at Prosper. I'm going to start blasting this out at every episode. Prosper Show, March 14th through 16th, 2022, in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay. Join us at booth 532. That happens to be right next to uh, the Thrasio booth. There are friends over at Gimba, as well as Payability. So you will find ping pong nestled right between all those lo three lovely companies. Come and check us out. We'll be there in full force. Lots of cool things coming out in a few weeks um, leading up to the show, so you don't want to miss that. Other than that, I'm Ryan Kramer. This has been Crossover Commerce. We'll catch you guys next time on another episode. Take care.